If you have your hard copy Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. As you do, if you don't know me yet, my name's Nathaniel. Uh, I get to serve as youth pastor here at BPCC with our young people and um, I'll be bringing the word to us tonight. So Philippians 4, chapter 4, Philippians 4, verse 4 to 7, which reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, is it really possible to live a life of joy and peace in a world which isn't at peace? You know, our world is a crazy, crazy place. There's constant warfare. There's constant violence. Things to be, seem to be getting more and more insane. If we look back at the last hundred years, uh, over the 20th century, over 200 million people were killed by war or oppression. Last Thursday was the International Day of Peace, a day devoted to strengthening the ideals of peace. But on that day, conflict and war kept on going. Uh, On that day, there were thousands frantically digging through the rubble in Brazil for earthquake survivors. Um, On Thursday, you know, war kept on going. There were battles fought in Syria. Uh, Civilians were killed in airstrikes. And... Our culture is changing as well. Here in the Western world, things are getting faster and busier as technology progresses. And with that comes stress and pressure, and that puts a big impact on people as well. Uh, The 2016 Mental Health Youth Report showed that almost a quarter of young people showed symptoms of probable serious mental illness, which was up 5% from five years earlier. And... Among all of this, among all that's going on in the world, among the craziness that happens in our lives, the verses in the Bible which talk about uh, peace and being happy, not stressing, having the peace of God, they seem like nice things, but sometimes they don't seem all that practical or realistic. Sometimes it can even feel like our Christian attitude isn't a genuine Christian attitude. Sometimes it can feel like, you know, we're similar to the people at intersections with big signs waving around, you know, dancing around super happy like they're super cheerful about, you know, getting paid minimum wage to promote a parking lot. Sometimes it feels like we're uh, customer service or retail workers, you know, who put on that nice smiley face and just grin at people and inside they're like, nah, nah. So passages which tell us to rejoice, to not be anxious, can seem a bit separated from our lives. So how does this actually apply to us? It sounds nice, but is it really possible to have peace in today's world? This is something which I've wrestled with personally a lot before and um, I found this passage was really convicting and inspiring for me. Um, You know, going through and figuring out how do I make what I know to be true about God, about relying on him, part of how I actually live my life, how about I, how, a part of how I go about day-to-day living. So I want to share with you three things uh, which I think this passage teaches us. It teaches us 
the attitude that we need, it teaches us the resources we have and it teaches us about the amazing peace that God gives. So firstly, rejoicing. The first thing that this text says is rejoice in the Lord always. How are we meant to do that? You know, there's a lot of cares in life. There's a lot going on. Me personally, I rejoice in God sometimes. Like sometimes it feels pretty joyful. I'll be in the pew singing and it's great or sometimes things are going well and I'm just joyful and happy. But how can I expect to rejoice all of the time? You know, sometimes I'm just too tired. It's been a long day. Sometimes things aren't working out and I'm sad and I don't really feel very joyful. And I'm not a very energetic, extroverted sort of friendly guy, you know, sometimes I need quiet space to sort of sit back and just chill a bit. It would be exhausting if I had to rejoice constantly. But what does it actually mean to rejoice? Well, the idea of rejoicing is something which Paul talks about a lot, especially in Philippians, um, which is sort of weird at first because when Paul wrote Philippians, he wrote it in jail Um, after having been through a huge amount of stuff. He had been through shipwrecks and beatings and persecution and suffering. But Paul's attitude to rejoicing is explained uh, right back at the start of Philippians in chapter 1. He makes it a bit clearer. He's talking about his response to these trials. And he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with the full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this shows us what Paul means when he uses the word rejoice. Because rejoicing isn't a mood. It isn't just something that we feel. Rejoicing is an attitude. It's a way of responding to the things that happen. So, Paul could rejoice even when he was in jail, even when he was going through persecution and suffering, because his focus was on Christ. He knew that it was all worthwhile. He wasn't set on this world, but he knew that what he went through would bring glory to God, had an eternal impact. And so, in our passage... He encourages us to rejoice in that same way. But there's more to a Christian attitude than just rejoicing. The next phrase is, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now that seems a bit odd, right? Let your gentleness be evident to all. Like, nothing against being gentle, right? But it seems like, are we supposed supposed to be rejoicing in Christ while carrying around like a kitten and patting the kitten and being like, yeah, nice kitten. And everyone goes, yeah, Christians, so gentle and rejoiceful, being converted. It doesn't doesn't seem quite right to me. But when we turn to other translations of the Bible, we see that word changes a lot. The ESV says reasonableness. Um, Some say moderation or be considerate. And all these sort of different words are because the original Greek word there is really, really, really tricky to translate properly. It's one of those just ones you can't quite get in the right word. It means sort of like a patient self-control, restraint and self-tolerance. But it's also got the idea of being reasonable, moderate, or, yeah, gentle as well. Uh, The ESV Study Bible has a really handy little note on this. It says, 
The joy that Paul calls for is not a happiness that depends on circumstances, but a deep commitment that is in the Lord, based on trust in the sovereign living God and that therefore is available always, even in difficult times. The gentle person isn't an arrogant, self-centred person. They don't insist on their own way or force people to do things or do things themselves for their own benefit. The best example we have of this is in Jesus himself. Uh, All through his life, Jesus showed this attitude. He cared for others. He showed humility and love and patience. Uh, I'm sure we can think of many examples of this in Jesus. Some which come to my mind would be uh, the woman at the well or the crippled man who's lowered through the roof. The multitude of people all through the Gospels we see coming to Jesus for healing and receiving his love and care and a healing not only from their physical issues but a healing which was far deeper, a healing from sin. And ultimately we see Jesus on the cross crying out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, pleading on the behalf of the very people who are killing him. So when we take this joy and this reasonableness or gentleness together, we end up with an attitude which is a Christian attitude of joyful, reasonable reliance on Christ no matter what the circumstances are. A joy which won't always be you know, excited and cheery and upbeat, but a joy which is resilient and consistent in the face of everything. This is a joy which will be a witness to everyone around Um, I know a lot of people, I'm sure that we can all think of people who we see this modelled in, in, this Christian attitude, Uh, but one which has really been an inspiration to me and which really uh, struck me as I was preparing for this um, is the the example of my mum, Uh, specifically in uh, what happened after a really uh, personally devastating thing that happened a couple of years ago that I saw this Christian joy in. And I've gotten a permission to talk about it, so it's all good. So, as I think a lot of you know, um, I'm the oldest of six kids. Well, a couple of years ago, back in 2014, we found out that was going to become the oldest of seven kids and it kind of freaked everyone out and uh, then we were excited and then we realised there would be a room with three kids in it and we all freaked out again and it was, it was great. But then, a couple of months in a fair way in actually, um, I was at Cadets one Monday night and my Uncle Daniel rocked up to pick me up from Cadets, which was a bit unusual. Um, you know, in the car he drove back and he, and he stopped and he turned to me and said, Nathaniel, the reason I picked you up tonight is because your mum and dad are at the hospital. Uh, your mum had a miscarriage. I'm really, really sorry. And that was a devastating process for our family, especially for mum. Uh, first miscarriage, she had six healthy kids. Well, I don't know. I don't have good eyes, but you know. For me, it was a painful thing. Um, I don't really cry that much, but I count how many times I've cried since mid-2014. But for mum, that was devastating. It tore her world apart and it took years for her to fully um, deal with that. But what really stood out to me, what what stands out to me the most about that now is the attitude which mum displayed through that. She displayed this Christ-like attitude of this joyful, peaceful um, gentleness, I suppose. When I thought about these verses, this is the example that came to mind. Um, At one of the, the hardest points in that process, I remember mum quoting one of her favourite passages from the whole Bible. Uh, Revelations 21, 
Uh, that's where it's talking about the new Jerusalem, talking about God wiping away every tear, looking forward to that reunion with Christ, that perfect perfection where we will be with everyone that we've lost in this world. And that's the attitude we're talking about here. Um, not like a super upbeat, cheery attitude all the time, but one of rejoicing in the Lord, in what he's given us, in his love, showing that gentleness and reasonableness even in the hardest of times. So how do we do this? You know, it's all well and good to talk about other people who do this, people who are role models for us in life, but how do you and I go about showing this attitude? What do we do when the going gets tough? And just rejoicing and reasonableness seem impossible things to do. Well, the next part of our passage answers that really well. Um, I think that's not a coincidence. It says, The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So do not be anxious about anything. That's a pretty big ask. Um, I don't know about you, I've got a lot of stuff that I tend to worry about. And it can feel like if I don't do it well enough, then it's just going to completely fall to pieces. You know, I'll worry about getting youth organised and making sure that's all good. I'll worry about getting small group materials done. I'll worry about making sure I've cooked enough food and I won't starve tonight. I'll worry about all sorts of things, making sure the car's good and it's not going to break down on me. There's, there's stuff to worry about in life, right? And so when we are worrying about it, um, how do we deal with that? Well, I think that while it might seem like a naive thing at first, if we've got a Christian attitude towards the worries and stresses of life, we know that God has it in control. Jesus talks about this himself. Uh, he puts it far better than I ever could. Uh, in Matthew 6 we read, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? God does indeed care about us immensely. And if we truly believe in our hearts that he loves us as deeply as he says he does, then we should be able to place our burdens on him and not have to worry about what happens to them. I think about this and I go, you know, how often do I worry and rely on my own strength to get through things rather than taking it to God? I think that it's important for all of us to, to learn how to have that true, genuine attitude of reliance on him. So, what are we meant to do with the concerns of life? What do we do instead of worrying? Well, in our passage, we've got a couple of incredibly powerful resources that help us out here. Firstly, is that little thing that Paul says, the Lord is at hand. He reminds us that Jesus is at hand. You can't get a resource much more powerful than that, can you? And it's, it's true in two ways, I suppose. It's true that we will be reunited with Jesus soon, uh, whether that's uh, when, he, when he returns, which could be at any moment, or when he calls us home, which also could happen at any time. And also, the Lord is with us. 
we're not dealing with the stress and cares of life on our own. God hasn't just set the world into motion and stepped back. We serve a real and active and living God. He acts in our hearts and in the world around us. Jesus came to earth. He died for our sins. He rose again and he ascended into heaven, but it didn't end there. He has done so much more than that. He's still alive and at work in the world today. Does anyone remember uh, what Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven? The last thing he said, he said, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And he has kept to that promise. He hasn't abandoned us. In fact, even through through the Holy Spirit, we even have God residing within us, nurturing and growing and guiding us in faith, protecting us and seeing us through our life. And that's what we should keep in mind when we're overwhelmed by all the worries and cares. Jesus will return. We're not alone. We will be reunited with him in a way where we can see him with our eyes, feel him with our hands at any moment. And not only that, but he is here with us, here right now in this room. God is, like Psalm 46 puts it, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. This is our Lord. He is near. And not only do we have the Lord alongside us, but he is there to give all of our burdens too. We all probably know the right sort of Sunday school kids church answer to, you know, what do we do when we come across struggles and challenges in life? You know, you pray about it, you go to Jesus, give it to God. Jesus, God, Bible, you know, you got the right answer. Well done. And that's the right answer. Um, Although we have some more specific detail here. It says, But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. We have this resource of prayer, which is a powerful and effective tool. But do we really know the right answer there? Do we really know that Sunday school question answer? Because when I think about it, when I hit upon hard times and struggles and issues come up, my first reaction is rarely to immediately pray to God, say, hey Lord, how do I deal with this? Um, I might try and fix it and find my own solutions and overthink it a little bit and when I can't fix it, be like, hey God, now what do I do with this? But it calls us to, in every situation, pray. And I think um, that's one thing to know, it's one thing to know in our heads, you know, we can, we can bring everything to God, cool. It's a completely different thing again to actually put that into practice and do it. So how do we do this? Paul uses three different words. He says, by prayer, that's the broad sort of word for spiritual devotion, in all different kinds of prayer. And supplication, so a bit more specific, there's the narrow word uh, that focuses on the kind of prayer, so asking God for help, bringing our cares and worries to him. And then with thanksgiving. Now, this is an important part which we very often forget. With thanksgiving. Because we need to thank God for what he's already done for us. Who knows the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie? The, uh, I'm thinking the Johnny Depp one with the really weird Willy Wonka. Um, we can easily become like Violet Beauregard, you know, the spoiled, bratty little girl constantly demanding more and more from her father 
but never ever satisfied, never ever thankful with what she's got. And we can become a lot like that too, constantly coming to God and saying, I've got a problem, Lord, can I have this? Can, I, can you fix this? I've got this issue. Without stopping to say, wow, look at all the stuff that you've actually already done for me. So rather, thanksgiving is a very important part of prayer. Psalm 107 tells us, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Colossians 4 verse 2 says much the same thing. It says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. Prayer isn't just a way that we ask God for things. It's a conversation that we have with our Heavenly Father. And again it says, bring your requests to God. So not demands, requests. Because a request can be denied or it can be granted or it can be put off for later. We present our requests to God, knowing that he knows what's best for us. Sort of like um, at the end of that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie, Violet's dad sort of finally figures out that he shouldn't be giving his daughter everything she wants and they're walking out of the factory covered in stuff and she's asking for more and he goes, no. He finally figures out what God has known all along, what he puts into practice every single time, knowing that just because we want something doesn't mean that it's, it's good for us. But he does know what is good for us and he will give it to us. So don't worry yourself to death. Instead, Pray until the day that you die. Imagine if instead of spending time in the car or in bed or wherever you are just worrying about something, if you were to instead spend that time talking to God about it, bringing it to him, giving him that concern, I think for me that would result in a lot more time spent in prayer. Now, maybe an obvious thing, but it's important to clarify here that we're not talking about serious mental illness in all of this not worrying and being anxious thing. Um, Sometimes there are serious issues, physical issues or imbalances in the brain which can cause big problems. And, you know, we deal with those in the same way that we deal with physical injuries to the body, like a broken bone or a, a bad diagnosis. We pray, we bring it to God, we pray for healing and guidance for the doctors while going to the doctors and using that resource which God has also given us. So this passage is talking about our attitude, how we respond to the cares and concerns of life, which we get caught up in so easily. Although we definitely should still rely on God in all situations, including mental illness. So when we put on that attitude of joyful gentleness, when we take advantage of the resources God has given us, we receive the peace of God. Now that last bit, the In that final part, Paul writes, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So while God might not answer all of our requests the way that we want him to, he might even say no to some of them, he might say a definite no to some of them, he will never abandon us. Here we're promised that the peace of God will be with us. So what's the peace of God? The peace of God is a state of tranquility of the spirit, a quietness which transcends our situation. This idea is really well described in Psalm 131, uh, which reads, 
Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I am content and at peace. As a child lies quietly in its mother's arms, so my heart is quiet within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and always. Those are really great words, hey? And I really think they, they show that they're written by someone who is resting in this peace of God. That's a short psalm, but I think it's getting at the same point as our passage from Philippians is. That true peace, the peace of God, is found in relying on God, in putting our hope in Him. And that true peace is something incredible. Uh, that's something which I've felt and which I think is one of the things which I'm looking forward to the most about heaven, of, of the new earth being reunited with Christ, with that total, complete peace, that reunion with Jesus. And like it says, it's a peace we can sort of describe, but ultimately it's something which transcends all understanding. Now those words bring my mind back to the big picture. We've got this God, we serve this God who made the whole universe. He made over a hundred billion different people and he knows and loves all of them individually. His wisdom and his peace is way beyond my understanding. You know, there's no peace of God pill that you can take. You know, hey, have some peace of God. Thanks, man. Oh, relaxed. Yeah, feeling great. That's not how it works. We won't be able to break this down through medical discovery and find the neurotransmitter responsible for peace of God because it transcends all understanding. It is from God. So that all sounds well and good, but what effect does it have? What does it actually practically like do? Why is that important to us? Well, it says it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Guarding is an interesting word choice. Why guard? Something to do with the guys up on the screen. The word, that guard, the word guard that Paul uses here is a very military word um, and it would have just immediately clicked with the Philippians who he wrote this letter to because the little town of Philippi was a Roman army garrison town. There were soldiers everywhere. They were used to seeing soldiers standing around guarding buildings, guarding important strategic points, guarding important people, they were very used to seeing things guarded and guarded very, very well. And it was a pretty close idea for Paul as well. Remember, he wrote this letter from in jail. He was being guarded as he wrote these words. So when he writes about how God's peace will guard our hearts and our minds, he's got a serious and he's got a strong understanding of what it is to guard something. And this idea of being guarded by God is seen all through the Bible. 1 Peter 5 verse 9 talks about being guarded for salvation. Or Psalm 16 where it cries out, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So we have this awesome assurance that God will guard our hearts and our minds. He will keep us safe. And it's interesting how he doesn't just say that the peace of God will guard like you. It specifies it will guard your hearts and your minds. 
Now, if you want a really good chat about the difference between hearts and minds and all that sort of stuff, talk to Luan. He's got some great thoughts on it and you can go really deep into it. But I think in the context that Paul uses it here, um, he's making a distinction between your conscious thoughts and uh, what you're thinking and realising and processing and your internal desires and motivations and emotions there. And this is important to notice that he says it, hearts and minds, but there's no mention of bodies. He doesn't just give an empty promise saying, you know, God will guard you, you know, you'll be fine. He doesn't say, you'll keep you from harm and you'll be great. That would be a crazy thing for Paul to say. He's been through, ever since he came to Christ, he's been through persecutions and whippings and beatings. He's been thrown out of cities. He's been shipwrecked. He's been bitten by a snake and somehow didn't die and they had to walk ages and go through another ship and he's had a really tough time of it. It would be nuts for him to say, you know, you'll be totally fine, God will guard you, but rather he says that God will guard what is important. He will guard our hearts and our minds. So when we go through trials, when we go through hard times, if one day we here in Australia, in Bray Park, are seriously persecuted for the sake of Jesus, we know that we can rely on the peace of God. We can find joy in knowing that through Christ, no matter what happens, we have an eternal, forever home waiting for us. Which is important because that's the same with Jesus himself. He went through pain and suffering. He didn't have an easy time of it on earth and he died very, very painfully. If you were here this morning, Ben did a great job explaining how the, the cross was this painful, agonistic, shameful death. And so we come to that last bit, guarded in Christ Jesus, who went through the same. What does it mean to be guarded in Christ Jesus? Well, this whole idea of being guarded in Christ Jesus is explained really well in 1 Peter 1 and verses 3 to 9. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Our salvation has been achieved through Jesus and our inheritance is in Jesus. It is because of what Jesus has done that we are guarded and the ultimate perfect reunion with him is what we are guarded for. We experience this peace of God because we are at peace with God in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that there will be no more stress at all. It doesn't mean that we'll be floating around in a cloud of God dealing with it all. It'll be woo happy not what it means, but it means that it, among all that stress, among all the worry of life, we don't need to be anxious, we don't need to rely on our own power, but instead we can bring everything to God. We can rely on his incredible, incomprehensible peace which will guard our hearts and our minds.
So is it really, truly possible to live a life of peace and joy in the world that we live in? The answer is yes. Yes, it definitely is. We've seen how this is possible, how in Philippians 4, Paul describes for us the attitude we need, the resources we have, and the peace which God gives. So let me share with you the words of another passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul says pretty much the same thing in some fresh words, the same thing as he says in this passage from Philippians. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ Jesus in you. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So I hope and I pray that as we all go from here tonight, we go knowing at least this, that in the face of all the world throws at us, no matter what happens, no matter what stresses and worries and hurts we encounter, big or small, we can respond with a Christian attitude of joyful reasonableness and gentleness, bringing everything to God in prayer and being guarded by the indescribable, awesome peace of God. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, we thank you for bringing us here tonight. We thank you that we can come together and worship you, Lord, and know more about you. Lord, we pray that you'll apply these these words, these scriptures to our hearts, Lord, that as we go from here and we live our lives, um, we won't just forget all that we've learned, Lord, but that we'll apply it, that we'll learn how to rejoice in you and have have an attitude of reliance on you, Lord, that you'll show us how to use these tools, these things that you've given us to help us, Lord, that we'll pray that we'll be constantly aware of your presence, Lord. And Lord, we pray that above all that you will bring your peace of God upon us, that you will keep our hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus as we await for his return. We pray this in your name. Amen.